Well, every first Sunday, we take a break from our series in the book of Mark, and we go to the Old Testament. We've been going through the book of Psalms in order, and we are up to Psalm 37 this morning. It was too long to fit the text of it in your bulletin. It's 40 verses long. It's one of the longest ones we've we've, uh, come up to so far in our time in the Psalms. But I'll ask you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word as I read Psalm 37. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word here this morning. Of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw their sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord Then, when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. 
Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall altogether be destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This sends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. To quote our song, in some ways, in other passages, the grass withers and the flower fades, from Isaiah says, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even though uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And we know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask that you would work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word even now. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 37 uh, is another acrostic psalm. Um, that is, its structure is alphabetic, at least in Hebrew, not in English. Uh, and what that means is every stanza or verse or line starts with a, with, with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If this were an English acrostic, which it's not, the first verse or stanza would begin with something that starts with A, the next line with something that starts with B, and, and so on. The, the structure of the psalm, I don't know if you were catching up on this when I was reading it, but it reads like something out of the book of Proverbs, doesn't it? it? It doesn't have a clearly outlined, other than the alphabetical structure, it doesn't have any kind of discernible A, B, C, you know, three-point kind of outline. It doesn't move from one thing and then go to the next and then go to the next. It kind of repeats things in, in cycles. It repeats the same thing over and over again in one way or another to impress one overall point. So that being the case, it's a little hard to outline. I didn't want to do a 22-point outline. That wouldn't have probably helped anyone remember anything. Um, so we're going to deal with the themes that are dealt with in the psalm. Uh, being that it's 40 verses long, it's going to be hard to touch on every little thing that's in the psalm. But uh, we'll, do, we'll do our best. And, and what's, what's the main theme of this psalm? In, in a lot of ways, the prosperity of the wicked is the main theme and how the believer, how you and I are supposed to view that prosperity and how, we're, how, we're, how we are to respond to it and how we're not to respond to it is the theme of the psalm. And what, what, is, what does David tell us not to do in Psalm 37? He doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point in verse 1. He says, fret not. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. We don't use that word much, fret, uh, these days. I don't, don't know that I hear it very often. But we aren't to fret over the wicked, over evildoers. We're not to be envious of wrongdoers. And as if to uh, em- emphasize how easily you and I, I think, are tempted to fret over evildoers and the prosperity of the wicked, David says the same phrase three times in the first eight verses. Verse 1, verse 7, and verse 8 all contain the phrase, fret not yourself. First eight verses, three different times he repeats it. To fret uh, there means to be anxious, to get all worked up, to get hot. The phrase has the idea of getting heated, getting hot under the collar, letting, you know, what do we say? We sometimes say, don't let it get to you. That's what David's saying here. 
don't let it get to you. Don't let it get you down. Don't uh, to fret, as he explains in those three verses, seven, one, seven, and eight. Uh, to fret often leads to becoming envious. Don't be fret, and so be envious. Verse one it says to be envious. Verse seven it, it, it links fretting with impatience. You know why isn't God doing something about this now? Why is this being allowed to go on and on? the way it seems to be going on. And verse 8 mentions acting out in anger and in wrath. Sometimes when we fret over the, the works of evildoers, over the wicked, we want to try to take things into our own hands. We don't want to wait upon God and his timing and his just judgment. We want, to, we want to hurry things up and, quote, help God out sometimes. And the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So David tells us, relax. Don't, don't fret yourself. About it. Now it's easy for us to fret. I don't know about you. It's easy for me to fret. I'm I'm constantly tempted to fret and to let things get to me. The wickedness all around us, I think, often, especially in our day, it seems so prevalent, so strong, and so ubiquitous. And at times, justice, real justice, actual righteousness, seems so hard to find, so weak, and so rare. We think, for example, it's not the only example, but. Uh, you know, there are wicked people in high places of even our government. And they seem, to my eyes at least, often to be above the law that they're supposed to be executing. They do things pretty commonly that you and I would be thrown in jail for. Literally. And nothing seems to happen. They seem to be made out of Teflon. Nothing ever sticks to any of them. They're above the law. Or they seem to be above the law. And on top of it all, they seem to just get richer and richer. And often they do that through the abuse of the power and the betrayal of the public's trust. Not about you, but for me, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get cynical. And just want to throw your hands up in the air and say, what's the use? What's the use of following the Lord? Look how well these people are doing while they're doing evil. You know, many a skeptic and a scoffer has used something that they refer to the problem of evil as their primary argument against the Christian faith. The problem of evil, if you're not familiar with it, it goes something like this. If God is really all-powerful and good, even if he's there, uh, then why is there so much suffering in this world? Why do so many bad things happen in this world? If God exists, and if he's good, and if he really is all-powerful and able to do all things, why is there so much suffering and evil? Well, half the problem with that question is it kind of ignores... It doesn't deal with the root cause of all the sin and misery in this world. What's the root of all the misery that goes on in this fallen world? Sin. The the question of the problem of evil seems to deal with it without wanting to acknowledge the presence of sin. Ever since the fall of mankind and Adam back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, sin lies at the root of all the suffering ever experienced in the history of humanity. Every last misery and bad thing that's ever occurred is the, is the root of all of that is sin. So in some sense, if you think about it, it's really a remarkable mercy of God that things are not really much worse than they are at present, as bad as they may be. Surely God has restrained in his kindness, he's restrained the wicked from committing even worse things than they already have. 
If God were to remove all restraint, how bad would things actually be? It would be a hell on earth. God has restrained that for the sake of his people and for the sake of the work of his gospel. Well, we as believers struggle, I think, often with a very similar question to that. Although we don't struggle with it from unbelief, we struggle with it in faith. And that question involves the prosperity of the wicked. That is, you and I, we see the inequities and the injustices of life. And I think we often wrestle with how we're supposed to understand all of that. How are you and I to maintain our faith and patience in doing good in the face of the prosperity, the apparent prosperity of the wicked? If the wicked prosper while the godly suffer want and affliction, are we serving God in vain? Have you ever thought that to yourself? You've probably never said those words, but you may have thought, I've thought those words. That kind of a thing in my own heart at times. Not at my, my best moments, but we think those things. And if that's the case, you know, what's the temptation there? Why not throw in your lot with the wicked? If you can't beat them, what's the saying? Join them. Well, if you've ever struggled with those kinds of thoughts and temptations and questions, this psalm, Psalm 37, I think was written with you, with you in mind and with me in mind. And the psalm of David is not written, as many things are, it's not written from some ivory tower of an academic, is it? This isn't David, you know, in the palace, writing it, having no problems, not knowing what suffering is like. It wasn't formulated by somebody with no life experience, by somebody who hasn't lived long enough to be touched by suffering and injustice. Exactly the opposite is the case. What does David say in verse 25? He tells us, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. When did David write this psalm? In his youth? When he was a teenager, right after killing Goliath? Did he say, whack, you know, kills Goliath, cuts his head off with his own sword. Look at me, I've arrived. Let me tell you all about the way things are. No, it's, it's after David's gone through the ringer. If you read through the story of, of David's life in the Old Testament, you know David's been through a lot at this point in his life. He's been through persecution and the threat against his life from, from Saul and others. He's been through betrayal from family members, from his own sons. He's been, as we saw in the book of Mark, looking back at the account of David eating the showbread from the temple. He was in want. He had, he had no provisions to the point where he had to go to the priest and ask for that for that bread that bread David didn't have an easy life and yet David says he's never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread so what what's David telling you and me this morning he's telling us he wrote this psalm of wisdom instruction and comfort toward the end of his earthly life and he wrote this psalm having at his disposal a lifetime of experience in walking with the Lord, serving him, suffering at times injustices and affliction at the hands of the wicked, experiencing deprivation, even falling down and falling into sin, some heinous sins that David committed, and yet he was never once forsaken by the Lord. He would have you and I to learn from his experience, and we will be the wiser for doing so if we take his word to heart from Psalm. 37. And let, let this, uh, verse 25, let this be a lesson for us in the church in our day. The fact that our culture seems to be obsessed with youth 
And churches have often conformed themselves to the world in that regard. Everything is tailored at times to seems to suit the youth, often to the point that the older saints are marginalized and ignored rather than valued and looked up to. This should not be the case. The church should not imitate the world in this regard. It's not just a great disservice and disrespect to the elder saints in the church, but the youth in our church are actually the worst for it when we think that way. The younger saints in the church need the wisdom and example of those godly men and women who have had a lifetime of experience proving, as we sang earlier in the hymn, proving the faithfulness of the Lord. It's not without reason that in verse 37, David says this, Mark the blameless. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. What does he mean by that? Mark the blameless. To my younger brothers and sisters in the Lord, even to you little ones this morning, take David's word to heart and mark the blameless. In other words, take note of the godly older saints. Observe his or her conduct, their way of life, their speech, their example of faith. Learn from them. Behold, not just look at, behold the upright. What, is it, what, do you mean, what does it mean to behold? Watch them carefully. Learn from them. Don't, don't just sit there and see them. See them. Watch how they live, as Hebrews 13.7 says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So watch the outcome of their life, their life of faith. Note that they, according to verse 37, they have what? They have a future. There's a future for the man of peace, both in this life and in the life to come. Those are the people that our younger believers are to look to as examples of life and faith. So we've seen the cause for fretting. The cause for fretting is the prosperity of the wicked. During the rest of our time in Psalm 37, we're going to be looking at what David prescribed as the cure for fretting over the prosperity of the wicked. And that cure consists mostly of two things. It consists of seeing with the eyes of faith and what two things are we to see with the eyes of faith? First, you and I are to see and think about and meditate upon the certainty of God's just judgment against the wicked. Things may look a certain way now, but they aren't going to stay that way. You and I have to be seeing with the eyes of faith the certainty of God's just judgment against the wicked. And secondly, we need to see with the eyes of faith the future inheritance of God's people in Christ. So basically, the two things you really want to see, if you want to make it simpler, you want to see the future of the wicked and your own future. And I trust that those two things aren't the same, one and the same. Well, the first thing is, we have to take note of in this psalm, David tells us, is the certainty of God's just judgment against the wicked. David wastes no time. He gets right into it in verse 2. There he gives us maybe the main reason why you and I are not to fret over the prosperity of the wicked he says, quote, For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Their prosperity is passing. It's temporary and it's deceptive. It's not going to last. It's not going to keep going. What is right now that you and I see is not a true indication of what will be in the future. This is not the way things are going to continue. And however they, things may look now, is no indication of how God 
will have them be later. During my time in seminary many years ago, one of my former professors, he was my prayer group leader, we were sitting outside, he was there with us uh, in our prayer group, and it was, a, I, I forget what time of year it was, but there were birds everywhere. The trees seemed to be buzzing. Birds were just singing and chirping away. We almost, it's almost like you couldn't hear yourself think, but they were just singing away. It wasn't the annoying kind of birds that sometimes you hear and want to get rid of. Uh, they were just singing away in, in, the, in the trees. And my professor, you know, just kind of off the cuff, he said that whenever he heard birds singing in the trees like that, he took it as a reminder of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 26. There Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here it is. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Every time he heard the birds, he was reminded of God's faithfulness and God's provision. That God, God cares for you more than those birds, and look how he provides for these birds. Now, I've, I've never forgotten that, although I don't bring it to mind as often as I probably should. Um, brothers and sisters, in, in the same way, I'd like to offer you another visual reminder of God's truth that is all around us here in Ramona at this time of year. Every year we have the winter and the spring rains and all the hills around us turn a lush and beautiful green. I, I love that, type of, that time of year. I think that's one of the most beautiful things you'll see is when everything is all green here in Ramona. Uh, and then May or June rolls around in the calendar and what happens? Temperatures start to go up to triple digits and what happens to those green hillsides? It doesn't take long for them to start to turn a very dark brown. The grass withers and fades. It brings to mind the words of our psalm, and it brings to mind the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. All flesh is grass, and, its and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So when you see the brown grass all over these hills here in town, or maybe you look at back of our house and see the dead lawn, uh, you know, remember that the word of God stands forever sure and certain. And secondly, remember that, that sure and certain and true is the future of the wicked and the unrepentant, that they, they too will fade and wither just like that grass. They will be cut down just like that Grass. They are not a people who are to be envied at all. And the suddenness and finality of God's just judgment against them will be a terrible thing to behold. Verse 10 says, David writes, In just a little while, might not seem like a little while, in just a little while the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. They won't even be here to vex you, to discourage you. One day, that's what's going to happen. Twice more in the psalm, David evokes that same imagery of the greenery withering and passing away. In verse 20, he tells us, The wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Again, in verse 35 to 36, 
He compares the wicked to a green laurel tree that spreads out and covers everything only to pass away and be no more. Being an enemy of the Lord is nothing to be envious of. That's something to remember when you think about the prosperity of the wicked. No one who is an enemy of God is to be envied in any way, shape, or form. It's a terrifying thing, a terrifying position to be in. No matter how much of the good things in this life the wicked may enjoy for a time, do not be tempted to envy them. David says in verse 16, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. If you think about what the actual truth is, the poorest, most humble saint on this earth should be the object of envy and jealousy for the richest, most powerful people on earth who is outside of Christ and still in their sins. That's the reality of it. That's the way things really are according to the judgment of God. You know, maybe in some part, some small way, you know, this explains the long-standing and often violent rage and persecution against the people of God that we've seen throughout the history of mankind. Maybe at some level, not to psychoanalyze things, but, you know, why did Cain hate Abel and murder him? Well, he was of the evil one, the New Testament tells us. But maybe in some small way, he knew... He knew what Abel had and what he did not. Like Joseph's coat of many colors, making his, his brothers hate him and envious of him because they thought he was their father's favorite. What they may have really hated more than anything was that his dreams were true. That, that he had, the Lord was on his side. The Lord was going to use him and they were envious of it. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, puts it this way. When we look forward with, the eye of, with an eye of faith, we shall see no reason to envy the wicked people their prosperity, for their ruin is at the door, and they are ripening apace, or ripening quickly for it. Their ruin is at the door. That's, that's the truth of things. Well, the second thing you want to look at throughout this psalm is not just the certainty of God's just judgment against the wicked despite their prosperity, but also our inheritance, our future inheritance, that of God's people in Christ Jesus. So it's not just seeing that the wicked don't really have it as good as they may, may appear, but on the flip side, we need to see and know that the humblest, poorest saint in Christ has it far better. You and I have it far better than it may appear in this life. What do they say? Looks can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. That's the case here. Matthew Henry writes again. He says... Those who are sure of an everlasting inheritance in, in the other world, the world to come, have no reason to envy the wicked their transitory possessions and pleasures in this world. You know, those transitory passing possessions and pleasures in this world on the day of God's wrath will offer them no comfort whatsoever. None. If anything, there'll be coals, extra coals dumped on top of their heads. If they enjoyed all these things, and yet forsook the Lord and didn't offer him thanks or worship him as God, even though they knew everything they had was from him. In verses 3 through 7, David gives us kind of a, a rapid-fire string of exhortations, uh, all centering on the Lord himself. In verse, in verse 3, he says, Trust in the Lord and do good. What's, what's the Christian's response to the prosperity of, of the wicked? Trust the Lord. He knows what he's doing. 
He has your best interest in heart. Trust in Him and continue doing good. Even though you don't see the, the ledger balanced in this life with, the eyes, uh, with your eyes, trust in Him and do good. And in so doing, he says, you'll dwell in the land. Or to do good even when we see doers of evil prospering for a time. We trust the Lord that the Lord does all things well. And he'll make all things right. He will reward his people by his grace with good things. God will not fail to crown his own gifts and graces in his people. Even though it doesn't always look like this, like that at the time. At present. Verse 4, David says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is probably one of the most misused and abused texts of the, of the Bible that you've ever read. You know, it, it, What does it not mean? It doesn't mean that if you delight in God, that he'll give you whatever you want, or that somehow he here is promising earthly wealth, health, and prosperity. This is not a proof text for the prosperity gospel, although many have seemed to use it that way. Uh, The very fact that the psalm speaks of God's people being troubled by the prosperity of the wicked should dispel anything of that kind of a notion. Everything about this psalm says the opposite. It says, if you were prospering the way that the prosperity gospel preachers, it's not a real gospel, that that they say according to this text, you'd have no reason to be jealous, right? You'd be healthy, wealthy, wise, rich beyond your wildest imaginations, have your private debt, and you'd look at the wicked and you'd say, well, whatever, mine's nicer. You know. No, you, the whole reason you're vexed is because they seem to have it better. And David says, no, no, no. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What, is, what David is saying there is that if you delight yourself in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord himself, it will have a transforming effect on you. It will transform your thoughts. It will transform your desires. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, A pleasant duty is here rewarded with another pleasure. Men who delight in God desire or ask for nothing but what will please God. Hence it is safe to give them carte blanche or a blank check. Their will is subdued to God's will and now they may have what they will. If you delight in God... What do you want more than anything else? You want God. And so God will give you the desires of your heart. Not only that, but in delighting in the Lord himself, you and I will begin to realize just how rich we really are in Jesus Christ. For in Christ we have God himself as our God and as our Heavenly Father. As the very first question of the Shorter Catechism puts it, man's chief end is to glorify God and to do what? To enjoy Him forever. To delight in God forever. You know, if we would just learn, if you and I would just learn to delight in the Lord, how might that change our perspective on everything? It would be an encouragement to us in our duties in obeying God's commandments. 1 John 5.3 says, This is the love of God, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If you love God, if you delight in God, his commandments don't feel like a burden. That's what John tells us in the scriptures there. If we delight in the Lord, according to Psalm 119, we will love his law. Think about that. That's maybe one of the weirdest sounding 
statements in all of Scripture. David says in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. Christians love God's law. We don't see it as a burden. We don't see his commandments as a burden. We see them as a blessing. Why? God's commandments, his moral law, is a, they're, they're a reflection of his holy character. So when you read his law, when you read his commandments, what do you see? It's a description of the character of your God and Heavenly Father. It's not a burden. It's a blessing to live in a way that reflects his his character. If you and I would delight in the Lord, it would transform our view of the Lord's day, of the Sabbath, and even of worship. No passing pleasures of this world can compare with time spent with God and with the people of God. Even the Lord's table that we're going to celebrate here this morning, as humble and as small as it may seem outwardly, this table speaks of a future feast that's beyond our imagination. A a party, a wedding reception of sorts. If you and I delight in the Lord, you and I will find it easier, as verses 5 through 7 tell us, to commit our way to God, to trust in Him, to be still before Him, and to wait patiently for Him. Over and over again, this psalm speaks of the wicked being cut off. You'll see, as you read through it, maybe you noticed it, uh, but the phrase cut off is used again and again and again regarding the wicked. And it also speaks multiple times of the righteous inheriting the land. Now, you and I probably read that and say, you know, what is that all about? I, I'm not an Israelite. I'm not looking at going into Canaan. Um, that was the promise that they were given back in Moses' day. And that, that's a picture of heaven. The, the promised land was a picture of a greater inheritance. It was there to teach them something about the gospel of Christ. Um, but, you know, the New Testament talks about inheriting the land, too, in some ways. Not, not Canaan. What does Paul say when he quotes uh, the fifth commandment in the book of, of Ephesians? He says, you know, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And he doesn't stop there, does he? He says that, it, you, that, it, that you may live long in the what? The land. Not the promised land. Not Canaan. He takes that that promise in the Ten Commandments and says, you know, in general, God blesses obedience. Not because he owes you anything because of it. It's not not a legal transaction where quid pro quo, I do this, so God has to give me this. We don't obey as mercenaries. We obey as children. God often, in in this life even, blesses his children for our obedience by his grace. And even more so in the life to come. So the blessings that God gives you in this life as you, as you follow him, those are, those are little pointers pointing us forward to our greater inheritance in heaven. In, verses, in, in verse 11, uh, we see something that Jesus actually quotes in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. He's quoting Psalm 37:11. The meek, not the ones who take things by force, but the meek, the ones who wait on the Lord, trust in the Lord and do good, will inherit the earth. Nothing can feel more backwards or counterintuitive than that. The meek are going to inherit the earth. God's people are going to inherit the earth 
That, that is true. It brings to mind the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Listen, listen to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, and, and hear the echoes of Psalm 37. Not, not the wording, but the ideas. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, an inheritance, Peter says, that is imperishable. It doesn't burn away like the grass. It's not temporary and passing and deceptive. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's not mixed with evil or suffering or sin. And it's unfading. The grass fades. Your inheritance in Christ does not. And it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your salvation will be revealed one day for what it really is. And on that day, no one, no one of you will be jealous of anyone in this life, the prosperity of the wicked. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself be pleased to work in us by his Holy Spirit to more and more give us the eyes of faith that we need to see things rightly, that we might discern, as Psalm 30, 73 Verse 17 says, we might discern the true end of the wicked and also the true riches that you and I have in Jesus Christ. May he teach us more and more to delight in him above all things, knowing that he will then give us the desires of our hearts. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for psalms, parts of your scripture like this psalm that, uh, that, that teach us how to see things correctly. And we ask that you would give us the eyes of faith that whatever we may be going through at present, whatever we may see around us that tempts us to discouragement and to being even fretting over the wicked or, or, or even worse, to be envious of them, give us grace to think of things like Psalm 37, to see and discern the true end of the wicked and not be jealous of them, but be fearful of such a thing. And give us grace to more and more delight in you above all things, that we wouldn't settle for the, the lesser things of this world, but that we would remember that we have you, and if we have you, we have all things. And there's nothing to have greater than, than the Lord Jesus Christ as our own God and Savior. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your grace that you have opened our eyes to believe in Christ. Uh, we ask that you would continue to open our eyes that we might see things the way you see them, and we might see how good we truly have it in Christ, and what a great inheritance awaits us in heaven with you, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.